Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Always important to make sure that we are uh, properly focused spiritually, that if necessary, that we recover as a result of any sin in our life through confession, and that we are ready to concentrate and focus and think objectively about what God has to say to us by way of application. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's such a privilege we have to have a relationship, a rapport with you because of what Christ did on the cross, that the barrier has been removed, the veil has been torn, and we have access to your throne of grace, and that you are our creator God, and that there is nothing in this life that we experience that is uh, beyond your strength, your capability, your provision, and that uh, we live in order to serve you and in order to demonstrate your significance, importance, centrality in our lives. Our fathers, we study, uh, continue this study in First Peter 4. We pray that you would help us to see how we are to think and how we are to respond and how we to act in relation to the opposition, the adversity, the suffering that we may encounter in life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 by way of introduction, and then it will not be long before we turn about five pages to the left, and we'll be in James chapter 1 as we work our way through an understanding of, uh, of suffering and why God allows suffering into our life, and then the, specif the specific kind of suffering that is being dealt with in 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, we are in this last section of Peter, the conclusion. Uh, everything in Peter is, I think, summarized in the phrase, standing in grace, that we live our lives by means of grace. And so, therefore, we need to understand a lot about grace. And I think in, in some ways, when we're standing in grace, as I pointed out, I think, a couple of lessons back, is that when we are... Uh, God empowers us by grace. It has this idea sometimes of communicating a power or strength to us. And it's in those passages, it doesn't mean that grace itself is a power, but that it's using a figure of speech, putting the cause for the result. And the cause is God's grace that he has given us all of these ways in which we can face and handle 
the difficulties in life. As I was thinking about this today, there are three basic things that sort of came to mind as I'm thinking about suffering in in life. One of the, I guess the first thing that I thought of, oh well, I got my slides out of order. Let's just review the structure in in Peter. Uh, first of all, the first uh, section from 113 to 2.10, stand in grace by girding up the loins of your mind. The focus is on mental attitude. We keep coming back to this in Scripture. What is our focus? What do we know? What are we thinking? What are we bringing to the, to the front lines of our, of our thoughts when we face adversity? When, and, and adversity can come in a lot of different uh, shapes and a lot of different forms, and, and sometimes it's quite surprising. Second division in the epistle is that we to stand in grace by humble obedience to even unjust authorities. We have to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us, even when those authorities are the source of the opposition or the adversity. That's 2.11 to 3.12. And then in the third section, that we stand in grace by focusing on how Jesus suffered. He never encountered any suffering that he deserved. No, no suffering that was the result of any uh, decision, any failure on his part. And we see how he stood in grace throughout his uh, period, the period of the hypostatic union. So as I was saying, as I was thinking about this today, realizing that none of us go through life without facing adversity. And so the first thing I thought of was that everybody faces adverse circumstances. They face failure, they face heartache in this life to one degree or another. And often when we are in church, we're involved with other Christians, we don't really get to know some people uh, in depth, and we see them week after week, night after night in, in Bible class, and we think, oh, that person really has it together spiritually. And we can think about that in relation to a pastor. We can think about that in relation to uh, anyone in leadership. We can just think about that in terms of other people that we know. But the reality is that, that nobody gets out of life without facing adversity, without difficulty. We all go through uh, troubles of one way or another, and sometimes we never know what those challenges are that other people face. It may be some challenge in relation to work. We may not know that they failed in some business. We may not know the uh, challenges they face every day in a hostile environment. We may never know, that, for example, I've noticed situations with people where you don't realize what they've gone through because maybe at one time when they were younger, uh, they had a child who had a serious disease and died. You don't know about some of the situations they may have. You get to know somebody a little later in life and maybe their children are grown and you don't realize some of the difficulties or heartaches that were brought into their life by by their children. Not that all children bring heartaches and difficulties into people's lives, but but I, I know so many people as adults who have adult children uh, who, and it seems almost proverbial today, 
that if you are a growing, maturing adult believer, then you have either have or have had, maybe they've recovered, a child who really doesn't care anything about their relationship with God. And you did everything that you knew that you could when you were uh, a parent, when they were young, in keeping them, uh, giving them the gospel, giving them all the right biblical information, teaching them the disciplines of the Christian life. And yet, as they got older, they just rejected all of it. That brings a tremendous amount of heartache into people's lives. Uh, I can sit around the congregation sometimes, and I could look out, and I can maybe count 10 to 15 people that I know have at least one child they're estranged from. And that's not uncommon. I know of those in the Jewish community who have reared their children and they're, they've rejected any sort of religious Judaism and they're just out in a secular world just rejecting all of their parents' values. I see this in many, many other uh, situations that not necessarily just related to somebody who is spiritually focused, but it seems today that this is more of an epidemic than than in previous generations. I don't know exactly why that is, but it's the enticement of the world is the basic uh, basic thing. So everybody has different challenges, different heartaches, and sometimes when we uh, look at those. It's uh, not just something external, but there are people who have struggles with their own sin nature and their, the, their own body chemistry uh, that present uh, problems. They may struggle with uh, the internal uh, attacks of depression. I know of pastors historically as well as in present time who have had struggles uh, with depression and they uh, have to trust in the Lord. They don't look to the world's solutions uh, for those problems. Uh, others face other mental attitude and emotional difficulties, but when we look at them and we know them on a superficial basis or maybe somewhat in-depth, but we don't know them because we don't live with them 24-7, we don't see those, uh, those challenges. And so we recognize that every one of us faces these adverse circumstances. It can be uh, failures we've had in our own life. Maybe those failures, we think they're our fault, but maybe they have nothing to do with any decisions we made. Maybe they're all the result of other people's, but it came across to us as failure. So we all have these these difficulties, these problems, these challenges. Not, not one of us gets out of life without facing a lot of trouble. Um Second observation is the reason for this. And I stated this a little harshly. It may appear to some people it's biblically true, but there's a lot of people who just wouldn't want to accept this as, as it's stated, that we're, we're corrupt people. We're living in, with corrupt people in a corrupt world. And you may think that the people you're surrounded are not that corrupt, but they are. They've just managed to camouflage it well. Uh, and you're just as corrupt. Uh, Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? You know, that, that, that's not talking about the uh, MS-13 gang members. That's not talking about uh, 
those who are engaged in in jihad and hostility towards Christianity. It's not talking about those who hold political and um, legal opinions that Christians should be shut down and their opinions kept out of the marketplace. It's talking about believers. It's talking about unbelievers. It's talking about every single fallen human being. And the problem is that that many, many people just don't want to accept that. In fact, as I've said many times, that's really the heart of the distinction between conservative worldview and a liberal worldview. Liberal worldview wants to think man is basically good, and he, every now and then he just makes bad decisions or makes evil choices until they run into something. I've always thought this is the reason that generated such hostility from the media and from the left wing during President George W. Bush's administration was he immediately identified those who uh, committed the attack on the U.S. in 2011 as evildoers. And by using that phrase, he was bringing a load of baggage to the table that there were at, there was absolute good and absolute evil and that there are people in this world who are inherently and absolutely evil and have evil intents. And see, that just goes so completely against the presuppositions of a liberal worldview that it just caused such th- this, this hostile hostile reaction. But there are so many people who they might agree that there's some evil in the world. They might agree that... Uh, that they know some people or that some people cause evil actions, but they really don't think that they're evil. They think they're pretty much good. And even when they do things that aren't good, they have an excellent rationale to justify that. And the problem for most people who are not believers and don't have any kind of a Judeo-Christian worldview or influence is that they don't have an objective metric to evaluate their own corruption. What are they going to measure it against? All they can do is look around them at people they know, and they think, well, they're at least as good as most of the people they know. In fact, they're better than a lot of people they know, so they think they're basically good, and that's what we describe as relative righteousness. We're relatively good compared to a lot of people, maybe not as good compared to some other people, but what I'm talking about here is that the real the cause of much of our heartache and suffering are just the consequences of our own bad decision. We're just mired in self-induced misery because we make sinful decisions and reap the sinful consequences. But God, in His grace, is good to us. You know, we're, we're not going to have any con, you know confessionals tonight. We're not going to have any testimony, but. But most of us could probably come up with a list of bad decisions and sinful decisions that we have made for which God has not lowered the boom. We have not reaped the consequences of those decisions, and that's just the grace of God. But at other times, uh, we have. When we think about those that are Unbelievers and have no interest or education in terms of sin or evil or corruption, their thinking is just completely dominated by arrogance. Now, 
that's true for a lot of believers as well. I'm not saying that believers just suddenly get a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to arrogance, but um, we have, we're born in corruption and we're born blind. Scripture uses that analogy. We're born in darkness. Uh, there's no light that, that penetrates that darkness. And we're dominated by self-justification and self-denial. In self-denial, we say, well, there's nothing really wrong with what I did. Everybody else, and then we start to justify, and we say, well, everybody else is doing it, or I have my reasons, it ju- it's, it's uh, felt good to me, or it's what I wanted to do, and I got so much pleasure out of it, I made this much money out of it. Uh, uh, that person really deserved uh, what I did, and so it was justified. But because of our arrogance, we're able to put a cloak over the evil and the corruption of our own decisions and we immediately cover it in a in the garb of righteousness and so we justify that in the scripture it talks about the fact that that we walk in darkness and this is something i think that we could develop we have to be careful where we go with this this analogy but we're we're not just in a dark room we're in a pitch black room wearing a blindfold. That's the result of sin. But God in his grace sends a little light into the room. It may not be a bright light. It may be just enough to give us a little bit of illumination. And it doesn't take a lot of this kind of indirect light to, to give us a glimpse of reality. I don't know about you, but I know that uh, when I was a kid and several other times as an adult, I have been deep inside some caverns. I remember going to uh, Carlsbad Caverns. I remember as a kid going to Longhorn Caverns over near near Marble Falls. And usually you get deep inside these caverns and the guides will flip off the lights and you're just in total dense blackness. You can't see anything. And then he will strike a match. And just that very small amount of light just illuminates so much in the midst of darkness. And that's what general revelation is like. And what happens, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, once general revelation begins to illuminate, what is the response? Well, that's just not quite right. I already had a construct in my head. That's not what reality is. Reality is the way I want it to be, what I've guessed it to be from from just my own experience. As I walk around this dark room I'm in, and I'm feeling for this and feeling for that and feel different. The furniture I've created an idea in my mind as to what the reality is in that room. And I get a little spark, and I see something, and it doesn't fit what I've already decided is the the, the setup in the room, and I reject that, and I blow the light out. But that light keeps coming back. That's God's general revelation. And then there's more specific light that we get, which is God's special revelation. And the unbeliever in his darkness, you know, turns that, that's a bright, much brighter light, and he reacts to that, and he suppresses that truth Romans 1, 18 to 20, he suppresses that in unrighteousness. He just wants to cut off the source of light uh, because 
uh, he would rather put his blindfold on and continue to live as if, as if his mental construct is the true one. And so he denies the fact that we're corrupt, denies the fact that this is our, that to the large degree the suffering we face is if it's not our direct problem, it's inherited from, from Adam and the denial, denial of sin. Isn't that what the first thing we learned about Adam and Eve after the fall? God comes walking in the garden, the source of light. God is light, and his very presence exposes the sin that has taken place and immediately they start to rationalize it. And uh, Adam says, well, it's the woman that you gave me. He, he, masterful term there. He, in one sentence, he blames both the woman and God for what he did. And then comes to, to, to Eve, and she blames the serpent. And so everybody's passing the buck. And, but that's the tone of the sin nature. We just don't want to accept personal responsibility for our bad decisions and even if they are bad decisions that we made decades ago now they come back to haunt us and so we're dealing with those with those consequences so we have we're corrupt people we're living in a I mean we're we're, we're corrupt people living with corrupt people sometimes we may say yeah that's really true you ought to see my wife or my husband or my my kids or my boss, they're really corrupt, and we blame them. But, but the problem is inherent to us, and we're living in a corrupt world. So that shapes the basis for suffering in the world. The world is basically evil, and in the world there is a, a hate for the light, and there is a resistance to the light. And then the third basic principle. Wait a minute, I think I skipped that slide. Okay, wait a minute. I know where I'm going. We look at passages dealing with light and darkness in John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, if you think about John 1, what's going on in the first four verses is in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then we were, and the word was the life and the light of men. And so the word, the logos, the second person of the Trinity, is light who comes into the world, and that's described by John in verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That's the problem with fallen man, is we don't comprehend what is illuminated by the light, either through general revelation or special revelation. There, this is a general truth. We don't understand it. And the result of that is then that we, uh, th that's the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And so this is general revelation. Jesus Christ's presence has a general revelation effect on all men, giving some form of illumination. But John 3.19 comes back and says this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Their deeds are evil so they don't want it, their deeds exposed, their thinking exposed. We're all under that, that condemnation. John 3.20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light 
and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. See, that's, our, that, that's the framework for our thinking. We reject the truth. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done, uh, done in God. So the only hope to survive and to flourish in this situation of, of where, where we're corrupt, everyone around us is corrupt, and the world is corrupt, and that's the source of suffering. The only hope to survive and to flourish in that situation is to have a hope and a reality which is based on something or someone which is outside of that box of corruption. That means that that something or someone has to be eternal and righteous loving and perfect. This is one of the basic arguments for the existence of God, that only with you have a, a personal and infinite God, the God of the Bible, can we understand what's inside that box of creation and understand the corruption that occurs, the, the consequences of that corruption and all of the sin and the suffering that develops from that, and only then can we, on the basis of what God tells us, uh, eventually defeat uh, the corruption in our lives and uh, destroy that corruption. And that happens in glorification when we've trusted in Christ and we're face to face with him. And then God ultimately in his plan is the one who defeats and destroys evil uh, at the end of the millennial kingdom and all evil is destroyed. So that's just some introductory ideas that we have to think about as we think about suffering, is that we're all going to encounter it. There's nobody here that's special. There's nobody we know that's special. And everybody here is going through things that, that very few people, other people here know about. And that's fine. Nobody needs to know everything that we're, that we're struggling with, but that's normative so that the adversity that we face, whether it's from our own emotions, the emotional bent of our sin nature, things internally or whether it's external. God has a solution. He knows about, about everything. And that's what Peter is about. And at the very beginning, he talks about suffering in the first, uh, in verses 3 through 12 of chapter 1, that we must learn to live in the light of eternity so that we can rejoice in the midst of these present trials, these present tests and that God's love enables us to live above those circumstances. And that's the conclusion in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 12, down through uh, 514. We live in the light of eternity, and it's based on humility. We have to develop humility, which is part of grace orientation, so that we stand in God's grace through unjust suffering that we might receive eternal rewards to the glory of God. So that summarizes it in a nutshell. So as he begins his conclusion, Paul, uh, Peter says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial that has, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You are, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, so the category of suffering that he's dealing with here isn't just general suffering living in a fallen world, but a targeted suffering that is 
comes our way because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in our most of our lives and in the lives of our parents and especially previous generations in this country, this has not been something that, that most Christians have had to deal with. Since the impact of the Protestant Reformation on Western civilization, especially as it as it flourished in, by the end of the uh, 16th century and, and through English-speaking peoples, especially through the uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century, most people held to Christian values. That doesn't mean that everybody's a believer and every, everybody was going to go to heaven, but they, they were taught within a Judeo-Christian culture right and wrong, and they had value systems that were basically com- compatible. And, the, and especially in the United States, the dominant framework was, was Christianity. But what's happened in recent years is as the, uh, from the baby boomer generation to the uh, generation Xers and then on into the millennial uh, generation, each of these groups have become less and less impacted in their thinking by Christianity to the point where there are uh, un- millions of people in this country who actively attack Christianity. They hate Christianity, and they were always there, or they've been there through most of the last 30 or 40 years, but as a result of certain Supreme Court decisions that have been made over the last 30 or 40 years, and the shift that's occurred on college, university campuses, where they have staffed uh, many of their positions, if not all of their positions, with those who are basically hostile to biblical Christianity, is now Christians can become fair game, and they can be uh, attacked and assaulted for the fact that they are a Christian because they stand for certain values that those who are not Christians want them to uh, validate. And and we see this especially in the the conflict over the values of gender and gender identification and sexual orientation in the whole uh, LGBTQXYZ movement. And we've seen this in recent years once the Supreme Court made a a decision to legitimize same-sex marriage and then you have uh, all of these uh, homosexuals who want to get married and they want to push the envelope uh, with, with people who especially are involved in things related to marriages um, and weddings. And so we've had these court cases that have involved bakers. You've had court cases that involve one individual, I believe in Kentucky, held, had a printing business. And he did not believe that it, in, in all good conscience, that he should print certain kinds of things. So he had people who wanted some very obscene things printed on T-shirts, strip clubs, uh, pornographic things, and he would say, no, I'm I'm not going to print that. But I can tell you and recommend a printer who, for the same price I would charge, will will print that for you. So he he was helpful. He wasn't being judgmental. He was just saying, that goes against my belief system. 
And that was understood. And he did this in a number of different areas. Somebody might come and might have a a political slogan or something, and, and that just wasn't his view, but nobody made an issue out of it. But the LGBTQ crowd comes along and they want to, they have to have validation and approval from the Christian community. So now here are these examples of people who are suffering for what they believe to be true. That is reality for them, and, and in truth, it is reality. And so now they are being targeted uh, specifically for the fact that they are a Christian in order to bring them under legal persecution. And fortunately, I know in a couple of these cases, they have reached uh, a judicial level where they have found in favor of the Christians that they have, they have these legal rights to uh, what they believe. It's First, First Amendment rights. But this, this is the future for this country. As the future becomes uh, less and less influenced by a Judeo-Christian worldview, then it's going to become more and more apparent for many believers who are working for different companies. Can you just imagine some conservative evangelical uh, believer who is working for one, some major tech company, and if his views were known, he might lose his job. He, there, there have been instances where those who were of a conservative political persuasion were ostracized, shunned at, uh, in certain companies, and have been forced out, and it's done in a way where they can get away with it uh, uh, legally. That's the kind of, of adversity that is being talked about here. It is suffering when you've made all of the right decisions. You've done nothing wrong. You have not disobeyed God's word. You've not committed any sin in the process. You're just taking a stand for the truth of what Scripture says, and you're not going to let your values and your beliefs be compromised by somebody else. It's not any different uh, it may be somewhat different in a de- in degree, but not in kind, from what happened in the early church. When, the, you, you, as a believer, you could easily rationalize, well, we know that the Caesar isn't God, he's just a human being. Uh, what significance is it if I go and uh, we know that idols are meaningless and idols are nothing, and if I uh, just utter these words uh, about the Caesar that he is... He is God. I don't believe that. I'm just going through the motions, and it's going to make life a whole lot easier. And there would be a rationale that, that what, what would be wrong with that? Well, it is a denial, forcing you to deny what you believe to be true in terms of your biblically shaped divine viewpoint conscience and forcing you to do something that contradicts that that belief. And so the penalty for that in the Roman Empire would be uh, that it would be treason. You could rationalize, well, if I, if I don't do that, then I won't be able to support my family. What's going to happen to my wife? What's going to happen to my kids? You could come up with a thousand reasons. And afterwards, you can say, well, I can always, I can always swear allegiance to the uh, Caesar and say that Caesar is God. And I'll just confess it afterward, and that's okay. But see, that kind of a compromise is 
part of the lust of the of the flesh that wars against the soul it is self-destructive of our own spirituality and so this is a kind of scenario that peter is talking about here that it is this type of suffering where you're doing the right thing you're doing it because you are a believer in jesus christ and the result is that you are now uh, suffering for that and he says you are blessed god is blessing you in those circumstances and the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you on their part he is blasphemed but on your part he is glorified the when it comes to same-sex marriage when it comes to other values that are taught in the scripture when we take that stand in our life god is glorified now I think this is an important statement here. How, what does it mean that God is glorified? Let's go back to what we've learned about the word for glory in the Old Testament, kavod. It has the idea of something that is, the literal meaning is something that is heavy. But what it means is something is, is serious, something is significant, something is vital and central uh, to life. It is that which has more significance than anything else. And when we live in obedience to God, no matter what the cost may be, what we are showing is that God's, our relationship with God and and God's involvement in my life is more significant than any other detail of life. That's what it means to that God is glorified. It's that relationship with God that is more central and more important to me than anything else. So I'm not going to compromise that by yielding to policies and yielding to pressures that come from the culture around us. So Peter goes on to say, let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief, an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's manner. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the manners in this manner. And what we see in these verses is an emphasis on suffering to one degree or another, some sort of analogy in relation to suffering. Uh, we suffer, we're reproached, all these different things at, at least five, time, uh, five times in those eight verses, the idea of suffering is, is mentioned. So, In verse 12, Peter states basically two things. First of all, that when we face suffer, when we face suffering for our belief in Jesus, our application of God's word, it shouldn't be a surprise. He says, do not think it's strange concerning the fire. And that's what it says. The word trial is not there, just the fire that is stands for the pressure, the hostility, the negative reaction, which is to try you which is to uh, test you. And then the second thing that is pointed out is when the believer suffers for his belief and obedience to Jesus, when the believer suffers for his belief and obedience to Jesus as a source of... uh, I miswrote that. When the believer suffers for his belief and obedience to Jesus, it is a source of blessing which will reverberate through eternity. That's verse 14. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This will reverberate in terms of eternal rewards. So last time I just began a little quick introduction 
to what the Bible teaches about suffering, and I want to review this very, very quickly. First of all, there's different categories of suffering. We've talked about different terms. Uh, deserved suffering and undeserved suffering are another way of talking about it that we use sometimes as suffering for blessing or suffering for judgment. Now, the first pair isn't synonymous to the second pair. Uh, but those are just different categorical terms that we use to talk about uh, suffering. Deserved suffering is what we suffer because we're sinners and we face the consequences of our own bad decisions. We either face the natural consequences of making sinful decisions or God intensifies uh, the results of that sinful decision and I used an illustration last time from the life of, of King David after his uh, adultery with Bathsheba and his attempt to cover it up by once she became pregnant by having her husband Uriah uh, put in a battle where he would have a high chance of being killed. So he conspired to have him, have him murdered. So then we have undeserved suffering. And in undeserved suffering, this is when we suffer because we're associated uh, intimately and directly with sinners who make bad decisions. This is suffering by association. So when uh, David made that bad decision, and then God is going to discipline him, and there are going to be negative consequences for that bad decision, and I outlined that there were four a fourfold judgment, uh, involving the death, <coughs> the death of the infant, uh, the rape of his daughter Amnon, I mean daughter Tamar by her half brother Amnon, and then her other brother Absalom seeks revenge and he killed Amnon, and then eventually Absalom led a revolt against David, and then he died uh, in the midst of that that revolt. Now think about that. Those, are the, those things happened within David's family to David's already born children. Tamar did nothing to deserve the consequences that she, of David's discipline. But he is disciplined for his sin, and because she is his daughter in his family, she has is going to go through uh, discipline by association. She's going to go through suffering by association, as did the other children and family members and close friends of David felt the consequences of his bad, bad decisions. So that's undeserved suffering on their part. They did not do anything to bring it on their part, but because of their association uh, with David, that brought suffering into their lives. And then secondly, we suffer because we live in a fallen world. We live in Satan's cosmic system, and as a believer, we are the enemy. We've been fortunate and protected by God's blessing and God's grace in this nation for the last uh, two or three hundred years, but that seems to be changing because of the volition of Americans. But the reality is this is normal in a fallen world. It's abnormal in God's plan, but it's normal in a fallen world. Job 5, 7, man is born to trouble. Everybody's going to suffer adversity. 
And Job 14.1, man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. We're all going to go through difficult times. And if we don't, and there's a period where there's peace and stability, then just thank God for it. Because sooner or later, and it may not be this decade of your life, but in the next decade of, the, of your life, things may be different. Fourth point I made is that when the believer's in fellowship with God and under the filling of the Holy Spirit, then then all suffering can be converted into suffering for blessing as long as we're walking by the Holy Spirit. So when David committed his sin, and then he confessed his sin, and then after that, that sin, uh, that, that those consequences that he's going through, he can face them with the word of God, and instead of it being suffering for judgment, it's suffering for blessing and was a tool that God used to help him grow and mature. So uh, when the believer's walking by the Spirit, all suffering is for blessing. When David was walking in, walking by faith in the Old Testament, suffering was for blessing. But even suffering that's originally designed for discipline can be converted uh, as, a, as a result of our turning back to God. Uh, the fifth point is that suffering begins as discipline can become suffering for blessing. I want to look at two passages. Let's go back to Psalm 51. We're not going to drill down into the psalm. This is one of the most well-known psalms in the Old Testament. Both of these psalms I'm going to reference are called penitential psalms just because they focus on David's turning, his repentance, his turning to God and his confession of sin. And there's some important things that we can uh, understand here when we look at these, at these chapters. Psalm 51, at the beginning. David is crying out to God. This is a good <clears throat> pattern to follow in prayer. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Now, we haven't gotten there yet in our study of 2 Samuel, but God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, and in 2 Samuel 8, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. So God's covenant with David comes first, before his, his major sin. Now, the word loving kindness means your faithful, loyal love. It is always a reference back to God's uh, loyalty to his promises, to his covenant. So when David says, have mercy to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, there's a direct allusion there to the Davidic covenant, that you made this covenant with me, and now I'm calling upon you to have mercy upon me on the basis of your faithfulness to that covenant according to your multitude of tender mercies blot out my transgression and then it uses these terms blot out my transgression wash me thoroughly from my iniquity cleanse me from my sin so that is the complete removal he calls upon god to remove that barrier to his relationship with god then he says in verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions. That's what confession is. We want to know what the word confession means. It's important to go back to these, these psalms I'm talking about, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, because that these are the synonyms that are used for confession. 
What does it mean to confess? It means to say, Lord, I did this. I did X, Y, and Z. I acknowledge that that is what I did. I am acknowledging my transgression. And he says, and my sin is always before me. In other words, in this particular sin, he can't get away from what he did. His conscience is challenging him with his disobedience to God. He says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, why does David say that? David says, because you would think that he would say, well, I committed sins. This, this is against my family. It's against my people. It's against Uriah. I, I mean, I sinned against a lot of people. But the definition for sin uh, is that it violates God's standard and God's character. So in one sense, we can't sin against each other. We, our sins are a violation of God's standard, not our standard. And that's what David is saying here, is that my sin is against you because I violated your standard, which was to be the standard for, for me as, as your anointed king. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be, <clears throat> that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge and that's the point is that he's recognizing his sin and that God's judgment on him is is righteous and just now let's turn back a few pages to Psalm 32 and look at what happens after David realizes that God has forgiven him and we know from the episode in 2nd Samuel uh, 8 and 9 and following, is that forgiveness doesn't mean the consequences or all consequences are eradicated. We live in a society where we think if you forgive somebody, then that means that you absolve them of, of consequences. Uh, this frequently will come up in the context of some sort of abusive relationship when you say, well, you need to forgive them. Well, you can forgive them, but that doesn't mean that you put yourself back in the same vulnerable position to be abused again. Uh, you, you have to have reality there, and forgiveness may me mean simply that you're, uh, you're not going to hold them accountable for what they have done. Not in, I'm not talking about a legal sense, but you're not going to hold bitterness and anger or resentment against them but neither are you ever going to let them be in a position to abuse you in that way or abuse a child in that way again. So that's forgiveness versus removal of consequences. And with David, we know that God forgave him, but there were still consequences. And that's so important to understand. Uh, when a lot of times we get these legal cases that come up where there's somebody in Texas in, on death row and they committed some horrible crime 20 or 30 years ago because we don't have the rapid ex execution of judge justice anymore. Uh, and somebody committed a horrible murder, and they got the death penalty, and while they're in prison, they, are, uh, they become a believer. And they begin to grow, and they may have a wonderful spiritual life and a tremendous ministry to other prisoners. That doesn't eradicate the violation of the law that was there to begin with. Now, God, David 
committed two capital crimes, and according to the Mosaic law, then he should have had his life taken. But his his sentence, according to the Mosaic law, was commuted by the only person who could commute it, who's God, who's the author of the Mosaic law. Only God could commute it, and God said, okay, you're not, I'm not going to require your life from you, but there's going to be consequences, and this is what it's going to be. But this idea that forgiveness means that consequences are eradicated is, is completely fallacious and has nothing to do, and it just shows that our culture really doesn't understand what, they, they, they want to turn forgiveness into some sort of, of license for wrongdoing. So Psalm 32, David recognizes God's forgiveness. He said in verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. This would be long-term consequences, uh, eternal consequences for sin. And, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, this is what happens in, in that period from David's sin until the time that he confesses and understands he's forgiven. David says, I went through this emotional turmoil. My, and it affected him physically because of sin. So you see the impact of a spiritual breakdown with God to a physical a consequence, physical impact. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. I, there, there's a physical manifestation where he, he felt miserable through my groaning all the day. He was miserable physically. That emotional guilt impacted him physically. He said, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the draught of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. Notice the word there. I acknowledge my sin, that's confession, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So this is where we know that what confession means is to acknowledge uh, the sin. And you forgave my sin. So, there are consequences there are that God may bring as a result of that which we uh, that's which we do wrong. So there's always recovery. That's what we see with David. No matter the failure, God's grace provides recovery and the solution to every problem, converting suffering for discipline into suffering for blessing. Seventh point was we will all face hard and difficult times. This is the new normal after the fall. Before the fall, life, life would go on without sin. There was no death, but death and sin and suffering and sickness and famine and disease and war are all the consequences of sin. That's not God's normal. That's the new normal after the fall. And then we closed out with 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has taken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested. We'll look at that word a little more to, uh, as in the rest of tonight and next week. To be, it has to do with testing uh, beyond what you are able. And I pointed out last time, a test is not necessarily something seriously adverse or something that is necessarily difficult. I know that some of you have had to go on diets. I've had to go on diets. I, every, all of you know how I love my ice cream. 
There are times when I have been on a diet, when I have had a good meal and my appetite has been satisfied, and you can offer me something with any kind of ice cream dessert, and I just don't feel attracted to it. Is it a test? Yes. It's the option to choose to eat it or choose not to eat it, or to eat cake or to eat this or to eat that, to stay on the diet or not to stay on the diet. There are other times when you just seem to have these cravings for whatever it is for you. It may be baked potatoes or it may be pasta or it may be uh, some other kind of dessert, bread or cake or whatever, and you just feel like, I've just got to have it. I mean, you've already you know, broken down that, that, that barrier. You want it no matter what, and you're going to get it. That's, uh, that, the test, therefore, is the option to either obey God or disobey God, to do the right thing or to do the wrong thing. That's the test. It's not necessarily the, the severity of the external options. Now, when we get to James, we ended with this last time, starts off very interesting. Just turn back a few pages from Peter if you're still there. Or go back to the New Testament if you're over in Psalms. James 1, 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is James, the half-brother of the humanity of Jesus. He's one who is saved uh, like like Jude after the resurrection uh, Jesus appeared to him and at that point he saved and he's writing to the 12 tribes who are scattered diaspora who are scattered same focal point same recipients of first Peter so he talks about the same kind of thing that Peter's talking about he's talking about these trials and these tests And he says, my brethren, and that indicates that they are believers, they are not unbelievers. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the first thing we ought to note is is the command here, and that is to count it joy. This is an interesting word here. It is a word that refers to thought, to reason, to thinking through something and coming to a conclusion. It is a word that has an accounting background. It's the same verb that we translate impute over in passages in Galatians and in Romans. For example, that that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him or imputed to him for righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. That's the same verb. It's, it's that something is added up and a conclusion is reached, a sum is produced as a result of that uh, thought process. So when we face adversity, that it may take seconds, that mental action is that, that we just add it all up and it's it's something that is joyful. Why? Because we understand something. That's That gets into verse 2. So we're to count it all joy. And in it's interesting in the structure of, of James that you have these major commands throughout the, the epistle, and then they're followed up with secondary commands which enable us to understand how to fulfill the major command. Okay, so how do you count it all joy? Well, it's going to be followed up by a participle in verse 2. 
because you know something. We'll come back to that in, in a minute. So we're to count it joy. And this is the word joy. It's kara in the Greek. And it really refers to a mental attitude, a mindset. It, it's one of contentment. It's one of stability. It's one of uh, joy. It's positive. It's not just a neutral sense that somehow this will be okay. It is a positive thing. Jesus said, my joy I give to you, to his disciples. This is a joy that he had uh, that was set before him. He endured the cross, Hebrews 12, uh, 12, 1. It is the fact that he never lost. It's not an exuberant uh, joy where you're laughing and you're having a good time. It is a mental attitude of stability and contentment even when you're surrounded by the storms of life. Count it all joy uh, when you fall into various trials. And the idea of falling into a trial there indicates that it's a surprise. Peter says don't be surprised by it, but we often are surprised by it. We just think everything's going around fine. All of a sudden, it, it, it all falls apart and we're overwhelmed by negative circumstances. And uh, then the next word, uh, various, is the word poikilos, from which we eventually get our word polka dot, which means something that's variegated or something has different uh, different colors or different patterns. So it's the, you never know what they're going to be like. There are all kinds of trials. And the word here is the, the Greek word perosmos, which means... A test, and a test is a choice to either apply the word or not to apply the word, to trust God or not to trust God. It does, as I said a minute ago, it doesn't have to do with the severity of the circumstances, and it doesn't have to do with whether or not we are subjectively attracted to the option. Now, another example of that is that we know that Jesus, as our high priest was tested in all points as we are yet without sin see we have some a sin nature inside of us that is attracted to sin sin is the option to disobey god that is external and objective to us but our sin nature we can come into a situation i could pick somebody out of the congregation and say okay if you are in this situation do you feel attracted to, to the idea of disobeying God and doing the wrong thing? And they might say, no, not really. That doesn't really appeal to me in that situation. And then I might say, well, if you were in this other situation, uh, would you be inclined to respond uh, in a sinful way? Sure, nine times out of ten. Because not all of us are tempted by the same things, just like if you've been on a diet Going back to that illustration, uh, some people are not tempted by sweets. They're tempted by carbohydrates. Uh, the other, next person is tempted by, by, by sweets instead. And so everybody's different depending on the strengths of your sin nature and the weaknesses of your sin nature. So that this is just talking about the fact that we face these circumstances where we have to make decisions. Now, how can we count a joy? It goes back to a mental attitude, and that's the first word in James 1.3. Because we know something. It's a participle. This gets into the grammar. It's very important. It is 
it doesn't have an article, so it's adverbial, which means it's describing a main verb, which would be count. So it's saying something about that main verb. And what it is describing is the reason or the basis for being able to count it all joy. And so this would indicate a causal meaning, count it all joy because you have come to know something. The gnosko has that idea of learning something. Uh, it's a knowledge that is gained or acquired, not a knowledge that is uh, known intuitively. So it's that idea of you coming to know. So how did you come to know it? By learning the word of God. You understand the doctrine of suffering. You understand adversity and testing and what's going on, what God's plan and purpose is. And so you can count it all joy because you know something. That the testing of your faith. Now this is a different word. It's not the word pyrosmos, which is the word for trial, it is the word dokimion. Now, this is a really interesting word because it's usually translated something like uh, like testing, but it's really an evaluation because uh, that's what a test does. It's to evaluate what you know. You go through a school, you go through a semester, you study certain things, and at the end of the semester or some times uh, as you go through the semester, you have to take certain exams. And as you do, they're there to test what and to expose what you have learned, to give you a, a, a tool for evaluating your own understanding and your own, own growth. Now, the interesting thing about this word dokimian is that it's not a word that focuses on exposing failure. We've all had teachers that designed tests where we thought that the purpose for the test was to show what we didn't know and to show we were a failure as opposed to giving us this chance to show what we, what we have learned. Uh, this word is only used two times at the, the noun form in the New Testament. The other is in 1 Peter 1, 7. Same context. I talked about this when we were in the first chapter of, of Peter where Peter talks about joy at the time of trials. And he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, see, there's that interesting word grief again. See, we get the idea as Christians that we shouldn't grieve or have sorrow as we go through a difficult time. That's not, you know, just like with, with death, as I point out every time I do a funeral. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we do not grieve like those who have no hope. He doesn't say we don't grieve. Jesus, the same word is used to describe his emotions when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's nothing wrong with experiencing grief in loss or if you're going through intense difficulty with having sorrowful emotions or feeling down. It's what you do with it that matters. If you cave in to self-pity and to self-absorption and you feel sorry for yourself and have your little pity party, then you've done the wrong thing with your emotion. But if you say, you know, I'm really down, and you talk to the Lord about that, then that's the path to overcoming. You're not going to let the emotional response to a legitimate cause 
uh, be the cause for you to, because that's your test. Okay, you've been hit and whacked with this situation, and you just feel kind of stunned, and you're a little, you're discouraged. Well, are you going to let that discouragement and respond to it in a way that will bring out sin in your life? Are you going to say, I really feel discouraged. I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to talk to the Lord about this. I'm going to claim promises related to this and be able to focus my mindset so that I can count it joy. So this is what Peter's talking about. We We've been grieved by various trials, but the purpose for the reason we can rejoice is that the genuineness, that's that word dokimian again, the value, the approval of our faith, that is what we believe. And that takes us to the last part of this verse that I'm going to talk about, knowing that the testing of your faith. Now, this word for faith is pistis can mean the act of faith, or it can mean that set of beliefs that we have, what we believe. And that's what the test is. You, you come to Bible class, you learn all this about testing and suffering, and then you go have a situation where you can apply it or not apply it. And so if you, you, you think, okay, I believe that's true. I believe this is how I should respond. Then when you get a situation, do you respond according to your faith or not. It's a test of the doctrine. It's a test of what you've been taught. That's what doctrine is, is what you've been taught. And it's the application of what you've been taught. So that it's an act of testing to develop something. And that is the last word in James 1.3, which is patience or endurance. Hupamone. It is it means to endure through a difficult time. And as 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, it's not, uh, we don't endure it by getting away from it. We go through it, we endure it, we stay under it because we have, uh, we are trusting in the promises of God and we're trusting in God to strengthen us so that we can show how important and significant he must be in our lives to deal with the fact that I'm a corrupt sinner and I live with corrupt sinners and I live in a corrupt world. And the only way I can overcome that is by uh, desperately clinging uh, to God and the promises of his word. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that, that there's nothing that we face in life that you're not aware of. There's no surprises in your plan for you. They may surprise us, but they don't surprise you. They come unexpectedly as we encounter various trials. But we are to count on something. We're to trust in your word. And therefore, we can have genuine joy in the midst of grief. Just as Jesus, our Lord, had true joy in the Garden of Gethsemane, and at the same time, he grieved and was sorrowful. And Father, we too recognize that at times when we go through sin, it gets us go through testing, it gets us down, gets us discouraged, but we must be driven back to your plan and your promises that we can uh, surmount uh, the, the difficulties in life, counting it joy, realizing that there's real joy because your plan is being carried out and you are using these tests to mature us and to conform us to the image of your Son. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.